What do you do when gratitude isn't cutting it? That's what I'm going to talk about today on Heart in a Drawer, the podcast for adult children of divorce. Welcome back to this podcast. I create this podcast episode for adult children of divorce, but I know there are other people in categories that are different from that that listen to this podcast, and I welcome you as the host. My name is Sarah Geringer, and I'm a Christian author, speaker, podcaster, and I'm also a creative coach and a book launch manager. And if you've tracked my journey, you know that I went through a difficult divorce in uh, early 2022. It's now November of 2023, and I'm still recuperating from the trauma of that experience and a lot of other related traumas. On top of that, I've been a child of divorce twice over, and the effects of that still reverberate many years later. So that's where I'm coming from today. I don't know where you're coming from, but this is going to be a gritty and honest episode because I'm recording this uh, two days before Thanksgiving, and I'm just being honest with you. Gratitude is pretty difficult for me right now, and I'm going to lead and say, you know, people tell me over and over again that they respect me, that I have such strong faith, and they look up to me. And I'm just going to be real with you. Everything I've gone through, it has made me feel really beaten down. And this year, being grateful on Thanksgiving is really hard. And my best friend of 40 plus years, we've been talking about this over the last couple months. And I've told her that, you know, I know all the research. I've, I've written about it in my books, the value of gratitude. And I am really a big fan of Dr. Henry Cloud. I talk about this all the time, and he talks about it frequently on Boundaries.me. I'm a member on that site, and he talks about all the research that backs up the power of gratitude. And sometimes it's the one difference between someone who's depressed and somebody who's happy with their life. So it's not that I'm knocking gratitude. I think it is an essential part of Christian living. The Bible is chock full of directives that tell us to be grateful. I 100% believe in that. But I know in this extremely difficult past two years, one thing that I've experienced is a lot of head knowledge that doesn't travel to my heart. So I'm 100% agreement in the headspace of my faith, the cerebral part. You know, I can intellectually assent to this, but I can't feel it. It doesn't connect. And so I've done some digging, and I think this might be helpful to you if you're feeling not so awesome about going into Thanksgiving with your broken, dysfunctional, fractured family that's full of toxic people. And I just want to sit beside you and we're going to have this hard conversation, but I promise you it's going to end up in a more hopeful place. Before we start that, I just want to remind you like I do on every episode, 
This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional counseling. It is meant to be a supplement to the help that you receive from a trained professional like I do. Check out the show notes for a free link for a consultation. So what I've learned in these conversations, multiple conversations over a period of months with my friend, is that when gratitude isn't cutting it, lament is what works. Now let me explain what lament is. There's a whole gigantic section, particularly in the Old Testament, about lament. Jeremiah is pretty much the rock star of lament. He wrote the book of Lamentations. And also, Job is perhaps the Olympic champion of lament. So in this year, I have been reading a lot of Job, and I've read it before, but when you are going through hell, like I've been going through, you need that affirmation, even though it's a lot of hard stuff. You need to know that someone like Job, someone like Jeremiah, huge giants of the faith, rock solid in their belief, and went through so much pain and torture, way more than I have, honestly, and know that they're sitting there before God and basically screaming at him and talking about how unfair it is and how brokenhearted they are and how he could do something, but he's not. And this verse I have gone back to so many times in so many different versions. And I feel like this encapsulates the idea of lament. I would even call it a spiritual discipline of lament. I think that gratitude is a spiritual discipline, but I also think that lament is very important. It's undervalued in this American culture, which is all focused on success and putting the best face forward and all this stuff. But culturally, we're suffering hugely. And I think lament might be the prescription we need right now in addition to gratitude or to get us back into gratitude. So let me read this verse to you. This is Job 13:15 in the New Living Translation. It says, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I am going to argue my case with him. What strikes me about this verse is Job could have stopped with those two first little pieces. God might kill me, but I have no other hope. You know, it reminds me of when the New Testament, when the disciples are like, Jesus is asking them if they still want to follow him because things are really hard for them too. And they were like, well, who else are we going to go to? You're the only one. So a lot of us Christians are like that. We're like, I'm not going to believe in anybody else, but right now I'm just really struggling. So it's not about not believing in God, but it's about what do I do with all these heavy feelings about, like I reflect on past seasons when the toxicity and dysfunction of the family members, I just couldn't even breathe. It was so thick at the holidays. And this is when the third part of this verse has helped me when Job says, I'm going to argue my case with him. Now, this is in chapter 13. God doesn't, quote, show up until the 40s, those chapters, okay? So this whole time, Job is laying there. Everything has been taken from him. 
if you don't have a lot of time to read this, go read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. But just remember that Job didn't have that behind-the-scenes look like we do. This was this huge showdown between Satan and God, really. So for this huge part of the middle section of Job, he's just saying things like, Cursed be the day that I was born. If you don't think that the Bible is relevant, you can just read Job and it will cut through all of the BS that you think that you hear, the religious platitudes. It cuts through all of that. And Jeremiah does too. But I would start with Job because I feel like it's a little bit almost easier to read than Jeremiah, in my opinion. Jeremiah is exquisitely painful, I think, and Job is awful. But for me, it's not as painful to read as Jeremiah. But I'm going to bring out something in Jeremiah in just a little bit. So Job is complaining. He doesn't know. He really thinks he's going to die. His health and all his wealth, all his family, everything in his whole life has been affected. I don't know if he ever even expects to hear from God. Now, at the end of Job, God answers out of the whirlwind, and he's pretty much like, who are you to question me? I make the sun rise. I take care of every animal on earth. What do you know about that? So that humbles Job. But before, this is amazing to me, okay? This is God's grace. If you want to have a real meaningful relationship with God, you have to get gut level honest with him. And that's what Job did, okay? I'm going to go back to this verse and I'm going to break it down again. God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I'm going to argue my case with him. Arguing your case with God even though you realize he's the creator of the universe, there's 400 billion other universes that he's managing, right? Not to mention the seven plus billion people on earth and all the governments and all the animals and everything in nature. And you might think, who am I to say anything to God? But Job is saying, no, I'm going to argue my case with him. And that's lament. What I have found, I'm just going to be super real with you, just the last even few days, I will say something before I get out of bed. I'll say something that I'm thankful for. Today, this is how dumb this can be sometimes, but I'm just being real with you. I woke up at 4.30. It's the first night in, I really don't even know, like two or three weeks that I have slept for six hours in a row. And that's really hard on me. I have Epstein-Barr virus. It gets triggered when I get a lack of sleep. I've been under a tremendous amount of stress with work and some awful things that are going on in my life. And I literally told God this morning, I'm like, thank you for allowing me to have six hours of rest. And I meant that right? But it's not that great of a situation. But I do kind of sprinkle things in like that during the day. I'm thankful for a refrigerator full of food before Thanksgiving because I know not everyone that I know really fits into that category. I'm truly grateful and I know that that comes from God's hand. But that, like I said, is kind of in that headspace, okay? Where that comes from is my headspace, and that's when I feel like whispering way down deep inside, gratitude's not cutting it. So what's going to cut it? What's going to penetrate to that heart space? I'm going back to Job 13, 15. I'm going to argue my case with him. So then I pour out all this stuff 
that makes me angry, that frustrates me, that seems just so incredibly unfair right now, that seems relentless, it seems endless, it seems like no one really cares and understands, you know, all this stuff. I mean, you could look at that as whining, or you could look at it as, I'm just being honest. I have a friend, Brian. He's a natural optimist, and I think if you've listened so far, you know that I'm naturally a pessimist. Like, I have to fight for a positive attitude. But Brian says, why don't we just ask God for what we want? We're his kids, and he loves his kids. So let's just ask God for what we want. And I think that's a wonderful attitude. And that's why I choose to have optimistic friends to lift me out of this sometimes. So I get finished dumping out all my crap, basically. And then I just say, you know, God, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. I know that you care. I know that you're working behind the scenes in ways that I don't understand and I don't see. And I really don't have enough hope right now or energy to say it won't be like this forever because it really does feel like that. Like that's probably how it felt to Job, right? That's how it feels to me right now. It's just going to suck for a long, long time still. But instead of just putting a gratitude band-aid on top, which is just the headspace, I go down in my heart and I say, you know, this really hurts. I'm not going to lie. Like, this really, really hurts. I still feel betrayed. I still feel rejected, like on all sides. And I feel very, very alone. But then I go back to the first part. God might kill me, but I have no other hope. Then I choose to put my hope in God. And that's the other half of lament. Lament, you always end with putting your hope and trust back in God. Lots of Psalms do this. David is a pro at dumping out all the bad things that are going on with him and then coming back to, I'm going to renew my hope. I'm going to put my trust in you, Lord. I'm going to praise you no matter what. And really for me, I can honestly offer praise and thanksgiving and gratitude once I've got that junk out of the way. And so I know this is not a hugely popular teaching. It's not a widespread teaching, but I think it's a really necessary teaching. And it's something you just have to do in that private prayer space with you and God. And I think it really helps me. It is keeping me from falling into the pit of despair. Now, I've been there when I was a teenager, and I don't want to go back. So I know I have to fight it. And the way to fight falling down into that mud hole, we call it that in Stephen Ministry, which I'm a part of, to keep myself from falling down into that mud hole of despair, I have to practice lament. I told you I was going to come back to Jeremiah for a moment. This is in Jeremiah 1. I found a wonderful teaching by Pete Scazzaro on this portion of scripture that truly encouraged me several years ago. And I'll try to find that and link it to the show notes, but I'll do my best to kind of recreate that teaching right now. So this is Jeremiah 1 verse 4, and Jeremiah is speaking. The Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. So Pete was saying this word new in Hebrew 
It's the strongest possible word that they could choose in terms of relationship. It is used to describe sexual union between a husband and wife. So there really is no higher human relationship, but this is the word that God uses. And he's saying this at the very, very beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. The next thing that Jeremiah says in verse 6 is, O sovereign Lord, I said, I can't speak for you. I'm too young. So he was a young man when he received this message from the Lord, this affirmation. And Pete was saying that God was very intentional in giving Jeremiah this blessing, this affirmation of his worth, of God choosing him and anointing him before the incredibly difficult work that Jeremiah was going to be called to do. God told Jeremiah that basically... God told Jeremiah straight out that the people weren't going to listen to him, but he was supposed to deliver this message of warning right before the exile occurred. That's really discouraging. I mean, can you imagine signing up for a job and they're like, you're going to work, but nothing that you're going to do is actually going to make a difference. But I just want you to do it because you're called to do it. (laughs) No one would take that job, right? But sometimes... What we do for the Lord, because his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his paths are beyond tracing out, we do what God tells us to do. And maybe you are that person in your family. I'm like this uh, target, I would call that. I would call myself that in my family. I'm the target for all of their ire, blame, criticism, and it's because I'm a chain breaker. I've done another episode on that. I will link that here too. Maybe you're that kind of person. Maybe you're the trailblazer in your super toxic family and no one wants to get well except for you. And you're taking all the hits. I've been there. So part of my lamenting exercise is to go back to, okay, what is God's purpose for me? And even though I can't see it right now, I'm in the middle of this mess, this period of just yuck in my life. And it's not over and I am not in the clear yet. But I can go back to that verse and think about, think back in my life, how God chose me when I was three and I was sitting in church. I knew him. I felt the father's presence and how he, other times, I don't have the time to tell all the stories, but it's very clear that he was setting me apart. I'll just share one. I think I have shared it before. This is when my parents were still married. There was a party at our house. All the guys were downstairs, and so I would have been three years old, and I remember going downstairs, and my dad was down there with his buddies, and he offered me a taste of his beer. And I could smell it, and I knew it wasn't good. I I knew it was, quote, bad. That's how I looked at alcohol when I was three years old. Uh, Because I had already saw the effects that it had on my loved ones, and it scared me. I thought they were dying. That was my three-year-old interpretation of events. When people were quite literally falling down drunk, I thought they were dying. And so I was afraid of alcohol. And so when my dad, like, and I, I realize a lot of parents do this. This is a stupid, irresponsible thing that adults do. I've seen this happen a lot of places, a lot of times in my community. Adults think they're being cute and funny, offering kids a sip of their drink. And I think it's abusive behavior. I'm just being blunt, okay? 
here I am three years old and I'm surrounded by all these guys that look like they're miles taller than me. And I remember because I have a photographic memory, I remember saying no, which was very, very hard for me as a little tiny girl in front of all these grown men. I said no and I ran back upstairs to my mom. And I reflect on that now. I can't claim all the goodness in that story. That's obviously God was working in me. Obviously God was setting me apart. That was before the divorce happened. That was when I was a little bitty kid and he had a different plan for me. I was thinking about this last night. This is just a little extra teaching. Try not to check out with booze this holiday season. I can't remember a time in all my family celebrations, even at my kids' birthday parties, people would bring their own coolers of booze and mix it with soda or whatever to, quote, get through the party, get through the celebration. That's how prevalent and pervasive alcoholism is in my whole family. And I don't allow that. I don't allow that. I don't want to, as difficult and painful and, as my friends have said, Job-like my trials are, I don't check out with booze. I would rather feel things and be connected to real life than to carve off the rough edges with alcohol. Now again, just being super honest with you, I have maybe two drinks a month with dinner It's a compliment to my meal. So my kids know that I do this. They don't drink with me, even though in my family, it was like, well, you're going to learn to drink at home when you're 13 or 14. I'm not doing that with my kids and they don't care. Alcohol has destroyed their parents' marriage. That's how they see it. And I know it's a temptation they're going to face. They're teenagers. But I'm not the one that's going to teach him how to drink. That's stupid. It ruined my marriage. It ruined my parents' marriage. I am not going to allow alcohol to be this crutch that I lean on to feel better. And I know I'm getting in some people's face right now, but because it has been so destructive, it's been like a blazing fire of destruction in my life, my whole entire life since before I was born. That's why I'm passionate about saying what I'm saying right now. So what can you do instead of that? Instead of checking out, you lament. I mean, you can go into the bathroom at one of your celebrations. I've done this so many times I can't even count. And literally just say a prayer in there. You do a mini lament. You can just be like, God, did you see that? Did you hear that, what they said? Can you believe that just happened? I mean... I'm about to scream, right? Like, I can't take this. And honestly, who says you have to stay? Yeah, that might make some people angry, but I'm going to link a post that my friend Gladys wrote, which is really good. And she talks about setting boundaries with family. And you shouldn't feel guilty for that if someone is intentionally harming you. And even if you share 97% of your DNA. But I'm saying for those lower level things, go into the bathroom or go to your car and go lament and put your hope back in God. And maybe you even want to go back to Jeremiah and say, you know, God, before I was born, you knew me and you formed me in my mother's womb and you had a plan and purpose for me. Show me what that is. Show me what that is in this situation right now. 
Show me what it is and help me be faithful to you. Help me find something to be grateful for later after this is over. And I promise you, God will show you that. If you're real with him, we got to get real with God. That's the only way we're going to get through all this crap that we have to deal with. And it's a lot at the holidays. I really hope this is maybe not so much encouraging, but affirming and saying, you're not alone in this. And there is a way that you can deal with all this. Maybe if you put lament first as part of grief, the bigger umbrella of grief, then gratitude can follow. So I'm going to close us out with a prayer. Father, I thank you for the gift of lament. You know how fragile and weak and broken we are as humans. You know the hurt that we carry and you create lament as a channel to process our feelings and get to those happier emotions of gratitude and joy. And so if my friend who's listening today is struggling to choose gratitude, Lord, show them the value of lament. Show them through Job's example, through Jeremiah's example, through David's Psalms, that lament is a gift and it's even a way to connect our hearts to you. It's a way to reintegrate our faith that's in our headspace with the belief that lives in our hearts but might have just gotten beaten around a little bit. And it's a way of you binding up our hearts and being close to the brokenhearted. That's a promise that you give us in your scripture. It's one that I'm clinging to. And I pray that you will help everyone who's listening, if gratitude isn't cutting it for them this Thanksgiving or this holiday season, that lament will still bind them close to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me on this gritty and real From the Trenches episode, Part in a Drawer. I pray that if it encourages you, you'll share it with someone who needs it. And if you have time to give it a review, it does help more people find this podcast. And I just want to help as many people as I can. And I promise that I'm going to be trying to make more episodes to help you get through this holiday season. And so you can always contact me through the links in the show notes and let me know how I can pray for you. It's my honor to do that. So until next time, I'll be praying for you. I pray you have a blessed and happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.